New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Alan Adamson. Alan is an industry expert in branding and has worked with a broad spectrum of consumer and corporate businesses in a wide range of industries. He is the co-founder and managing partner of marketing strategy and activation firm Metaforce, an NYU Stern adjunct professor, and the author of the book, Seeing the How, Transforming What People Do, Not Buy, to Gain Market Advantage. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Your book looks at market advantage and business innovation in an interesting way. And it starts with marketing, which isn't usually where people start when they think about innovation. It's usually a bit later on in the process, but you highlight marketing and the thinking of marketers as key to identifying relevant differentiation, but it's more complex than that. It's not, as you say, about marketing, building a better mousetrap. It's about something altogether different. Can you share why you don't think it's about the mousetrap per se, and why marketers are finding themselves in potentially a really new role? All right, let's start with the mousetrap. So I started my career at Unilever, and you know, I was lucky enough to have some products, Dove and Caress and other brands, that had some differences. And the, there weren't that many products that, like, that were like that. And so my job as a marketer was just to tell the marketplace, Dove is one quarter cleansing cream, and you should buy it because of that. It's better for your skin. But over time, and you, everyone knows this, when you go down the aisle, it's really hard to understand the difference in one brand and the other. The product differentiation has been shrinking. And if you're lucky enough, as you say, to invent a better mousetrap, the number of days you have a better mousetrap before three competitors have an equal mousetrap or even better one is shrinking. So you can't do marketing anymore just telling consumers why your product is better. Uh-huh. Now, the second part is that marketers used to be in the business of not thinking they were in the innovation business. You know, the people in the lab invented the product and they had some ideas that skin softness was important. But then marketing's job was to to tell that story. Mm. But now, you know, you can't necessarily invent something in the lab. And marketers should take this lead here because they're the one closest. If you're a good marketer, Mm. you spend time with consumers. You look at them, you understand them, you, you see where the opportunities are. And you should be the long-term radar for the development team and for how the company goes to market and what the offer is, because you are in a position to see change happening fast in front of you and understand that change. So you can tell the rest of your team, we should make our company sell this or offer this, because you, in theory, are the closest one in the company to the customer. That's great. And in the book, You described this wonderful image that was actually provided to you by Antonio Belloni, LVMH's group managing director. And I think it's a good framing device for our conversation. Could you share that? So Anthony was a a client of mine, believe it or not, at Procter & Gamble many years ago, where he learned, like many people do at Procter & Gamble, great marketing. And then he went into the the fashion world and LVMH. And and I talked to him about 
how he sees differences. And he says, you know, when you're in the game, when you're in the marketplace and we're competing against Gucci or wherever it is, we are at like a chessboard. We are a checkerboard. You know, we're looking right at the playing field and we know the rules. We know how the game is played. We've all been in the luxury business and we have a very fixed view, one dimensional view uh, of what consumers want, how we should deliver it, how we should price it, how we should sell it. And we know how to beat our competition, but we're really fixated on this one-dimensional view. He said, but outside behind you are some startups looking at the chessboard from a different angle that see other things that don't know the rules that say a little bit of the Jerry Seinfeld, you ever wonder why people don't sell it this way? And there are competitors who also look at it and don't have the same scale so we need to change them. So if you're only looking at your direct competitor and trying to beat them and you think you know the rules of the category, this is how you sell fashion, this is how you sell beer, then you're going to get displaced. If you look at how many, many brands have gone from being number one to number zero or number out of business, right? it's usually not their number one competitor. When I worked uh, with PG, you know, Gillette was worried about Schick, but they didn't get disrupted by Schick. <laughs> they got disrupted by Dollar Shape or somebody who was outside of the playing game looking at it from a different angle. Most disruption happens not because your direct competitor does something because you're so fixated on them. You'd see them do it before they even know, but because somebody looking at the marketplace from a different perspective doesn't understand the rules and has a little bit more, gee, this is strange. Why do they always do it this way? Right. I, what I loved is the idea that existing players aren't reinventing, they're optimizing. Exactly. And that so disruption and reinvention really comes at these oblique angles. They don't see it coming and it, it's coming in in a different way. They're sort of the thinking different. And in your book, you go through eight different lenses through which you can get this different perspective and we don't have time to dive into them all, but we will go through a few. And first, I'd like to talk about that first lens you discuss in your book and it's focus and drill down. Can you take us through what that means? So part of when you when you look at a marketplace, there's usually somebody in it, as we just said, that's already doing a pretty good job of solving the consumer need. And it's probably best if I give you an example. For years, and this is a long time ago, if you wanted glasses or contacts, you went to an optical store. And over time, that's where you got your glasses or contacts. But somebody from the outside looked in and said, well, I wonder if I can focus in and drill down. I said, if we are just focused on contact, and if we don't have to build stores, and we go direct 1-800-CONTACTS, because it was before the internet, yeah. <laughs> calling 1-800, we can really make it a powerful business. So they didn't invent the contact, they didn't invent the need for contact, but they just said, if we really focus down and drill in, the success in the market, a lot of people have the same idea at the same time. And the successful company is the one that executes it better. So the iPad wasn't the first tablet. HP had one, I remember. Dell had one. You mm. know, Elbow had one. You know, Apple succeeded because they got everything executionally right from how they the user interface, to the size, to the feel, and even the way they showed it. Other tablet manufacturers way back on, you have to go back a little bit into Wikipedia, you know, we're showing tablets while somebody's sitting at a desk. But Apple realized that the tablet would free people from the desk. So when they did the introductory ads, they had somebody sitting on a couch with the tablet, the, the iPad on their knee. So they even were able to execute better. Part of looking for opportunities is not inventing something new, changing behavior, but looking at existing categories, 1-800-CONTACTS, 1-800-FLOWERS, or dozens of them, and saying, is there a way to focus and drill down? 
Well, and I'm going to be a bit of a pain in the neck here because in the intro of your book, you talked about Maxwell House Coffee. And I, I really liked it and I and how at one point someone had suggested they branch out into coffee shops a la Starbucks, but mm-hmm. they didn't and nobody thinks about them now. And I was like, wow, but that's also a different business, you know, expanding. And so then when we got to the first lens and it's about focusing in, my question is, when is diving in dangerous and how can a business know when it's time to narrow and when it's time to widen? Great question. Thanks. Part of drilling down is making sure, as I said, you can execute well. So if your company is great at manufacturing and taking coffee from the tree and putting it in a bag and putting it in a supermarket, oh, but you have no DNA or expertise in figuring out how to set up a store or run an experience, you're right. You know, if they focused in at that point on retailing without learning how to do that, they would have swan died. Right. But one of the things before we, you know, jumped into another thing about getting ready to look through these lenses is you have to look at your team. When I work with a beer company, everyone on the beer team had been in the beer business five years, 10 years. They had a fixed view. They said, this is how we market beer. We do funny ads on a Super Bowl. We show it in ice. We talk like good old boys, ironically, <laughs> being questioned now. And that's the game. And they're, so they're so knowledgeable about the beer category. They And they all came from the same school with the same frat and the same degree. And they have a sea of sameness inside. Inside the company, they have people that have tunneled it. So part of being able to succeed, whether it's focus in and drill down, is to make sure your team didn't all go to the same school, doesn't have the same background, sees the world differently. Because if you get a wider vision, more peripheral vision, you'll be able to spot these opportunities better. But your first point is the key one. Don't get into a business if you can't win the execution game. So okay. if you see an opportunity, Maxwell House would have failed there, but they they knew the coffee business. Oh, that will never succeed. Coffee, people like to brew it in the morning on their kitchen table. They're never going to stop on the way to work. They had such a fixed view back then. <laughs> they had grown up in a, in a world. They were not even open to discussing would it be interesting to hire some people with retail experts. Right. When we spoke about your last book, we talked about getting out of your bubble, but in a world of customized feeds and my Google search is returning different results from yours, how can a well-intentioned marketing executive escape these well-intentioned customized feeds? How do you do it? How do you get outside of your bubble? I'm well, you gotta, and tackle. How do you do it? Yeah. I mean, you got to really, you got to work hard and you got to do it all the time. Okay. So what does that mean? So I hate to go back to the madman days, but in past time periods, I would go into the office and people went to the office and there was the coffee uh, chat. And my boss might say, hey, Alan, did you see that ad that Colgate ran yesterday for that new product? I go, yeah. And we'd have a conversation. And I realized that I got, we were all seeing everything. There was no focus. Everyone was exposed to everything. So you could just watch television back then and see what's going on. And and of course, you could do research and go to speak. And part of it is also talk to different people, get out of your, don't do research in your backyard, Mm -hmm. Um, watch young people. But so I was visiting my daughter in in college and I stayed at the uh, on-campus hotel and I went downstairs like many and I pretended to work out, but I also had my phone so I could watch the news in the morning. And I realized all of a sudden uh, on campus, through the feed, I was seeing 10, start, 10, I never heard of these companies. There was one startup, one new company, one different offer. I go, oh my God, when I'm home, I'm seeing car ads, insurance ads, financial service ads. But all of a sudden I'm in university, I'm seeing 
you know, DoorDash, a completely right. different world. And I realized that while I think I'm seeing what's going on in the world, it's unbelievably curated, even now on, of course, cable. But right. of course, when I search for things, everything, you know, as you know, every you, you have tunnel vision and realizing that you're in the tunnel and you're in a bubble. And if you don't push at the edges, you're you're not going to see the train coming down the track. So because we aren't in Mad Men era, you had this very eye-opening experience going to a college campus where what was going to be filtered by geolocation was going to be a little different from what you're normally looking at. So in addition to getting youth research, would that be one of the recommendations? Should you put yourself in different physical locations where different populations are so you're going to get at least... Well, you can do that technically, stuff? yes. You should, you should you know, make sure you're not pegged as you know, somebody of this income living in the suburb of the city working in this industry. <laughs> so right, right. The best marketing tool to get out of it is observation. So watching younger people going to places that you wouldn't really order go to talking. You know, part of it is you know, you also hang out at places with people like yourself. You mm -hmm. all go yeah. So you really have to try hard because yes, you can research can look at it, but ultimately you you're sitting at your desk reading a summary of what 18 to 22 year olds want, you know, is, is a starting point, but you know, you, you need to personally, I think you need to personally get out, look, talk to people and talk to different people. People say, this is the way it is. I heard this three times. I believe it. You need to get out of your own comfort zone yourself because right. everyone maps the world you know, and this is the way things are. And yeah, but you have to constantly be curious. You have to constantly say, gee, what happens if I just did the opposite? <laughs> well, well, you encourage getting out of your comfort zone. How do you help yourself to thrive when you're uncomfortable? It's uncomfortable. So what do you, how do you manage that? Well, part of it on my team, I make sure not to hire people that look and talk like me. Okay. <laughs> I try to okay. hire people that come from different backgrounds, different, my creative teams, you know, didn't all, you know, get an MBA. And part of it is surrounding yourself with people that help you see the world in a different way. You know, one right. of my first jobs, you know, coming out of school, I was at an ad agency. I had the final interview and I go to the CEO's office and I'm all set to answer questions on target marketing and segmentation. And and he looks at me and says, oh, you had a good day. You spoke to eight people. I go, yeah. He goes, Alan, yeah, tell me the last book you read and movie you went to and what you learned from it. I, well, yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about media strategy. What you, and I, you know, I fumbled through that question. And when I asked him, he said, look, you know, everyone can learn marketing. But, you know, to be successful at this, it was all the way, this agency, we need to be our clients' eyes and ears. We need to help them see what's going on culturally in the art world, in theater, in literature. Because if we are connected to the culture and what's happening, we will be there seeing eye dogs because they're too busy in conference rooms looking at financial reports. And so I still take that advice to heart. You know, if you don't have to do market research, but you have to, you know, watch something you wouldn't normally watch. My kids forced me, I think, last year to watch Wednesday, and I remember that. But even watching that and understanding the TikTok phenomenon with uh, Wednesday dancing, you know, you've got to see things that you ordinarily wouldn't watch and right. be open to and be a good observer. Right. So now, of course, talking about getting out of our own bubble and how everything's shoving us into our own bubble, the next lens is customization and making things personal. How is customizing 
different from hyperfocus? Um, hyperfocus is all about, you know, if you're going to deliver flowers, you need to get them there by two o'clock. Customizing is, is looking at the individual and say, what do I need to do to make the experience better for that person that they'll value it more? I'm going to go back to I was lucky enough to do business globally a long time ago, and lots of our my travel was to Asia and China and Hong Kong. And, you know, one of the treats I would get myself once in a while in Hong Kong would be a, a tailored shirt when you had to wear a shirt and tie to work. And those two, three or four shirts that I have over the years are still in my closet because they were made for me. And right. I think, you know, everyone wants things made for, and of course you can customize a lot more digitally, but whether you're, you know, flying Delta or you're buying insurance, you don't want to pay the same insurance rate as the driver who, you know, uh, can't keep his car or her car on the road. You know, right. you want your policy to reflect the fact that you, you know, um, always drive the speed limit, that you haven't had an accident, you, you've you taken driver aid. You, you don't want to buy what's right for everybody, you want to buy what's right for you. And mm-hmm. so... If you can, most categories are focusing now and customizing because one technology allows you to do one to one, but two customers and consumers, you know, want that ability to say, this is made just for me, even if it's not. And that's not easy to do, but over the years it's been there, but it's still a big opportunity in how you think about your experience you want to deliver. You know, when I fly Delta these days, they know where I want to sit. They know what I want to drink. They know, you know, it, it's it's sometimes frightening when I call them up and say, my flight just canceled. What do I do? And I can't be in trouble with the app. They say, hi, Alan, we know you're on this flight from Cleveland. You know, let's figure it out and I'll solve it right now. Look at your phone and you should see a new ticket appear. Do you see it? Bingo, you're done. So, you know, yes, some is technology, but realizing that that's the goal is to make your experience feel it's just for one person. How would you Not say that that's just easier to do? Harder how to do. Would, how would that be different from seeing like a concierge? I mean, there is a difference. So what what would you say? If you're lucky enough to have interfaced with some great concierge and you say, I need dinner reservations and they open open table and they say, well, do you like Chinese? And they go, here's a Chinese restaurant. And you say, have you ever been there? No. A good concierge doesn't just answer your question like Google. A good concierge Spends a minute getting to know you. You got two kids. You're traveling. You're this, and looking at you, being a great observer, and then even solving a problem you didn't even know you had. Oh, mm-hmm. say, well, you're going to the museum there, but I recommend there's a great ice cream place here. And so they are thinking about the macro problem, not the question and answer, which Google can do pretty well. Right. Um, customer service. I'll give you an example. So I, if, if, I, I to go back to my visit to my daughter in college. When I went to her sorority house, the deck of the sorority house, it looked like a, a, a warehouse, shipping and receiving. There must have been 60 Amazon boxes, 15 Target boxes, you know, every possible. Mi- and it was like, um, and, you, and you say, well, that's pretty normal. But then when I spoke to the kids inside, are you returning this? No, I, I you know, I've never been to a post office. I don't even know where the post office is. We don't have a printer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because yeah. everyone's offering free returns. So if you ask a consumer, what do you want when you're shopping online? You would probably get, oh, easy returns, free returns. But right. if you just deliver free returns and realize, mostly at the COVID, most of us live through that, you're not returning one box a week, even for somebody who knows how to do this. During COVID, I was returning you know, 20 boxes a week. <laughs> and, right. and so now there's startup companies that help you manage your 
logistics, um, and they'll return it for you, track the return. So that's an example of seeing like a concierge saying, yes, everyone says easy return, but what's your real problem? Your real problem is you have 10 boxes to return. You can't find the box. You don't have a printer. You know, you don't have time to line up at FedEx. You know, you know, you know there are a hundred reasons. A good concierge would say, give me the box, Alan, I'll return it for you. Right. Do you think it can only be applied to luxury? I mean, that is a nice, that's an, uh, a luxurious thing to have. No, I mean, a lot of, I mean, big in hospitals like the Mayo Clinic, if okay. you go there, get treated. You don't just show up there. You know, they say you're coming to Minneapolis. Here's where you should stay. When you come to the hospital, you go to this door. You'll meet. You'll meet John. John will, you know, orient you. You know, so you know. It, yes, it, it it tends to be more than buying a you know tuna fish sandwich, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be a you know high end thing because more and more. I mean, you look at the car business. You know, you, it's being transformed slowly, but not only electric, but you know, it used to be if you wanted a car, you had to go to an obscure part of town. There were lots of cars on a lot. You, you know, something you had somebody talk to you about. Uh, but now there are certain car companies. It's happening in used car with Carvana. Why do you have? To, why can't they bring the car to you? <laughs> why can't you test drive it on your street? Why do right. you have? <laughs> and why so, do you have to go to their scary industrial park? Yes. Exactly. Um, so you know, and that's not necessarily seem like, but you know, everyone in the category does it the same way. But somebody says, "Gee." What would a concierge type of service do? You wouldn't have to line, you know, park in a crummy part of town and they would come to your house and say, here are two cars, let's drive them, you know, keep them for a couple hours, you know, have your kids jump around the back seat, see what happens, put your dog in, see if it's, you know, whatever it is. Right. You would have a different type of experience if you just don't do the minimum. And I think ultimately in the, in the world we live in, which is the most important marketing tool is word of mouth, uh, no one shares ordinary. <laughs> no one says, you know, I took a flight to L.A. and they got to L.A. and I had decent peanuts. People will say either, you know, the pilot got lost and landed in Cleveland <laughs> or or they'll say something extraordinary. So from a customer service point of view, you just offer free returns. No one's going to talk about that. But if you say, look, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to pick up not only my boxes, but everyone else's boxes. I'm going to send you a complete summary and I'll t- return everything for you. You might tell something. Right. Right. Now, in your introduction, you also, and I'm going to do a bit of a dogleg here around focus groups. And and I think it goes to what customers want and if they'll tell you what they want. I mean, to your point about concierge is like, you just want it taken care of. They say they want to return, but it actually is more than a return they want. Now, what do you believe that every marketer should understand about talking to focus groups? What does it mean to think like an ethnographer? Yeah, you know, I, 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 whether it's focus groups or other qualitative or any other research, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in Steve Jobs had the general idea. Consumers have a rear view mirror. They can tell you what is. They can't look around the corner. So, you know, they can't tell you what they, they can sort of tell you what I'm looking for. And if you say, what are you looking for in a washer dryer? They say, you know, good price, you know, fits here. It looks like, but they can't tell you the, the future. And, you know, to get more out of research, you know, if you go in and ask what is, we did a study for a big pizza company. And, you know, we asked consumers, what do you like about it? We like the taste. What do you like about it? It tastes real authentic Italian. And, and I, you know, I love the cheese and any suggestions now is, yeah, everything's pretty good. And we like everything about this chain. And then one of the research moderators says, you know, what if this chain went out of business, what would you do? 
And then, oh, I don't care. I would go to the other tent. So I realized that even though they said everything was great, there was no differentiation. <laughs> so they can't imagine things. So we often, and I often suggest, if you don't put something in front of them, would you be interested in this? And use some prototype, some iteration, some stimulus to get them to try to say, oh, that's interesting. I never thought somebody could come to my house and pick up all the boxes. That's really cool. So they can't tell you that, but if you show them ideas, so I, we like to go into qualitative with a whole bunch of, and if it's a crazy idea and they hate it, that's great. But at least it opens up their thinking uh, because if you just ask what is, you know, you'll spend a fortune on research and you pretty much know 80% of it already. Right. So in terms of crafting questions, it really is about about presenting things and that they react to are asking, how do you feel in this out way? You know, understanding pain points, uh, what frustrates you. They exist forever and people just assume that's the way it is. There was a famous Curb Your Enthusiasm episode with Larry David, and he's at the kitchen counter. And a lot of products you buy in stores are in these hard oh, clamshells. <laughs> and, you know, and that's the way it is. And that people, if you say, what's wrong? And they'll say, fine, I picked it up and I opened it. You know, it, maybe some of them will say, well, it was a little hard to open. But, you know, Larry had the ability to see this. And so in that episode, he's sitting there first with scissors. That didn't work. Then he takes a screwdriver, then pliers, and finally takes a hammer to smash it. But understanding that, so no one would, but if you said, would you be interested in a package that had a, you know, a zip line to open it? Oh, yeah. Because I spent right. forever trying to Oh, yeah. And so lots of that, you have to put ideas in front of the customer. Right. Well, we've only touched on a few of the ways in which people can change their perspective and think about their business differently. But a lot of people I consult with or give a talk to, or when they read a book, they want rules, they want a magic formula. And what do you think about formulas and when do you break rules? Yeah, I, I, I think the best you can do as a marketer is to really be able to look at the problem from multiple dimensions. And really do your best to make sure your eyes are fresh and curious. So in seeing the how, we talk about different ways to look at the market, lenses, perspectives. Mm-hmm. And none of these are going to be the answer. But if you if you look at the problem as going back to what Tony said at LVMH, if you only look at it from one perspective, you're never going to solve it. You have to look at it from different angles with different perspectives. And by by making sure you're skeptical, curious, you know. And then looking at different, you'll have a better shot of finding a way to grow your business than if you just, this is the way we sell beer. You know, we, you know, do these type of ads, we pile the cases high at the, at the beverage store and offer a great price. Right. So good. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. I really appreciate it. It was fun talking to you again. Thank you. We've reached the end of another episode up next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.